Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. If you need a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up. Uh, one of the ushers, one of the men and women around the room would love to get a Bible into your hand. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep this. But when you get there, go ahead and flip open to 2 Samuel 6. We've been exploring examples from the scriptures, moments where like followers of Yahweh have modeled for us key qualities of an undivided, wholehearted worship. Last week, we looked at this moment from the life of Miriam. Uh, She's like this prophetic worship leader, leading her people up like from Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land. And today we're going to look at another prophetic worship leader who was also a king. Yes. So would you stand with me as we read the word together? We're in 2 Samuel 6 and we're going to be 12 to 22. Now King David was told... The Lord has blessed the household of Oban-Edom and everything that he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Oban-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might Well, he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with the shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, "How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today." going about half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you speak of, I'll be held in honor. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we want to worship you the way that you deserve it and the way um, that you know we need to learn to worship you. So Jesus, I just pray right now that you would come in this room so powerfully and you would break off fear or you would break off just um, chains of past or how it looks, but Lord, that you would meet every single person today to learn new things about how to worship you and how to fall before you. Jesus, we all need that in our lives. So we thank you that you have given us a place of worship. Uh, Lord, so come meet us. And Jesus, this is for you, in your name. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. Hey, love, before you go, 
Uh, we're about to look at this moment of worship in the life of David, yeah. uh, a moment where David like totally like went for it. Okay. Now we have a household of pretty boisterous worshipers, yep. if I could put it that way. Yep. Uh, and, and in fact, even like last week, Hallie was up on stage here leading worship. We have, we're often down here front row hands raised high. So in kind of our story as a family, is there a moment that like leaps out where you think of like, oh, that was a moment of extravagant worship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The one that comes to my mind is when we were in Glasgow at our church plant there. Um, They would have all the kids in the front row as the teachers and parents, we were in the behind them. And so, which meant that on one Sunday we were worshiping. Duncan was about four. He was really young. He had his eyes closed. He had his hands just held worshiping with all that he had. I was a bit surprised. I hadn't seen him do that. Um, but what, where did he learn that? That was kind of our first question. But they were sitting with nobody in front of them. So he wasn't looking around. He wasn't copying anybody. He had just found a place of worship for his own little heart. Um, yeah, and he was up so many rows in front of us that you couldn't actually get no, to him. So no, he was, no, yeah. So no. when you saw him up there worshiping, what, like, what went through your mind? Oh, well, I think the first thing that went to my mind was, should I stop him? Like, and that as a mom, I was like, I look back now, I'm like, oh my goodness. But that was my first thought was he was too, maybe too young. Um, who had taught him to do this? Did he even understand what he was doing? That was what was going through my mind as I was sitting behind. But after a while, I think we both, the Lord got, began to speak to us and realize that he didn't even need to understand it. He was just worshiping Jesus from his heart as he knew best at that age. And really, this is who Duncan is today. If you've ever seen our, our son worship, he's a very passionate worshiper. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because the scriptures do call us to come to God as children. And so there, I guess we all need that reminding sometimes. We see our kids just worshiping, going for it. Uh, sometimes we as adults can kind of stand back and be a little intimidated by that. But yeah. it's a beautiful thing. So anyways, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, we're going to jump into this text together, but before we do, isn't it fascinating? We live in this like cultural moment and actually even in a city uh, where it seems like anything goes, right? Like that old play, like anything goes. And, and our identities are so wrapped up in our personal experiences and expressions that it's almost impossible to talk about the anything without genuinely hurting people, uh, which is a whole conversation for another time. But what's interesting in light of today's passage is that in the midst of this almost like deification of personal expression, followers of Jesus tend to struggle with even the smallest forms of expression when it comes to worship. There's a, the amount of timidity in the Western church on a Sunday can be kind of surprising. Now, to be fair, I get it. Uh, personal expression today has become a form of self-worship. Uh, it's become a form of like self-glorification. And often it's just like, look at me, look at me, which is the antithesis of worshiping Jesus. Our goal on a Sunday, whether through word or song or giving or prayer, it's all about us uniting together to bring glory to our King, to to reflect Him, to elevate Him. We participate in a manner that draws attention to Jesus, not to us. But here's the thing. There are times when our worship feels inconsistent with what we say we believe. We, we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we try to keep it on the inside. 
And this unintentional, unintentionally can result in telling the wrong story to our, to our neighbors and to our coworkers. I mean, we don't typically have any issue with getting a little expressive when it comes to celebrating other things in our life. Think about whether, you, whether it was you or maybe one of your kids comes home with an A on that test, that really, really difficult test, and we cheer, right? We get excited for them. Or, or maybe if you reflect back to that, like last time you were at a concert together and everybody was going for it and you just found yourself caught up in it and you're like clapping and hooting and hollering because the space is so electric, uh, or, or maybe it's even just as simple as like indulging in that favorite mouth-watering dish, right? I mean, I don't know if there's any noisy eaters in the room. You know, some of the spouses can like knock each other. It's like, man, you must really be enjoying that right now. All the sounds like, but we, we, we express ourselves. We express ourselves. And then on a Sunday morning, we come and we encounter the presence of the living God of the universe, the one who literally made all of those things that we were just celebrating and suddenly our expressions become awkward. Even the most basic thing like singing or raising a hand, it, it, what, is it that, what is it about these like public displays of affection, PDA, as it relates to God? What makes it so difficult? Now, obviously, some of it's cultural, right? I mean, worship in kind of Western white European cultures tends to be a little bit more careful, a little more subdued. I was at this amazing church a number of years back in Uganda, uh, and everybody was dancing around and worshiping. It was actually impossible to not dance around, which is not a sight you want to see, by the way, with me. Uh, I mean, but everybody was moving so much that you're like getting knocked all over the place. And it's like, it was, it was alive and electric and it was beautiful. And, and, and the thing about it is, is like, just like Israel, Ugandan culture has as a part of that beautiful mix, dancing and, 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 and just this live experience in their worship. But I do think that there's something more going on in our own experience, some sort of internal obstacle that stands between us and expression. It's like something has robbed us of our ability to express our love and praise for God. And again, the difficulty is that this inconsistency might be accidentally communicating the wrong message to a watching world and, and a younger generation. We may accidentally be communicating that God isn't worthy of our cheering, that he isn't worthy of our applause, that he isn't worthy of our deep, deep delight. And that is why I love this particular moment in the life of King David so much. It's a moment that models for us what it means to be in a place where there are people watching. David's life was very much on display, but David worshiped as if there was only one set of eyes that mattered. Bringing all of his joy, all of his passion, and all of his love to God and God alone. Our text begins with David retrieving the Ark of God from Obed-Edom's house. More than just kind of like David's Indiana Jones moment, this was like the moment where David was stepping into his kingship on his own terms. This is like David's triumphal entry. 
or at least his second attempt at an entry, because the first one, it didn't go so well. He tried bringing the Ark of God up to Jerusalem, but everything went sideways. You, you'll have to check it out. It's at the beginning of the chapter we looked at. But an ox trips, someone dies, David gets freaked out. The whole plan goes on pause for three months. So the Ark of God ends up at the home of a Levite named Obed-Edom. And we're told that the Lord blessed his family because of the Ark's presence, though we aren't told exactly why. What makes this golden box so special? Why is David so eager to have it in Jerusalem? Well, we get a big clue in verse 2, where, where it says that David brought up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Did you catch that? More than just a golden box to carry the artifacts from Israel's past, the ark represented a focus point for the worship of Yahweh because it was the throne of God himself. Now, the scriptures tell us that, that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool, Isaiah 66, 1. And that's pointing to the fact that like, like there's no throne room in the universe that can contain all that God is. But the ark gave God, uh, gave Israel a sacred like focal point, a, a sacred thing to, to keep their eyes fixed on as they worshiped. And it would later occupy that special place called the Holy of Holies, which would in many ways become like God's throne room here on earth. And this, this is why Obed-Edom was blessed. God's special presence rested on the ark between the cherubim, there's two golden angels. You guys have all seen Indiana Jones, right? Two golden angels pointing to each other. God's presence dwelt there, a stunning visual of the, of the eternal throne room that we read about in the book of Revelation, where Yahweh sits in all of his glory. And here, in this moment, on the top of the ark, Yahweh is uniquely there, uniquely present. And David wanted that presence at the center of the kingdom, at the center of the royal city, and at the center of rule. So in round two, David was committed to doing it right. So we read this, 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As David brings the ark of God into Jerusalem, there are three important details, elements that we need to catch. First, notice that David's worship was obedient that it was aligned with God's own heart. In David's first attempt, he placed the ark in kind of like the back of a cart, which seemed logical, um, but, the, but God had told the people how the ark was to be moved. The ark of God was to be carried by the Levites as thrones were often carried. A symbol, not just of, of God's authority, but of his connectedness to his people. God is the kind of king who is, who's carried amidst his people, attached to his people. He was supposed to be, the, the throne was to be carried by his people. 
You see, God cares about how he is worshiped. He lays out a lot of details and a lot of like, this is what val- what's valuable to me, people. I want you to worship me this way. And in our have it your way culture, where we desire our own way first, we need to be reminded of the importance of God's desires. God has desires. He does give us freedom and he does call us to be creative for sure. But God has desires and our worship needs to reflect what he cares about. Does that make sense? Way more important than our preferences. Way more important than our comfort. Our worship must align to the heart of God, the heart that we find in the scriptures. But second, notice David's worship was extravagant. It was abundantly generous. It was this crazy overflow. David sacrifices fellowship or or peace offerings every six steps. Think about the cost involved in all of those animals. The original journey would they think was about 10 miles. Think about that for a second. That That is a lot of sacrifices. And think about all the like taking down and setting up at the altar and taking down and setting up at the altar. Like it all mattered. This was both costly and time-consuming, but these offerings were all about thankfulness and relationship. It was David's way of saying, thank you, God, for being in relationship with us. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for being our God. Now, there's no biblical command for this. It's not like this was laid out in the scripture. David just did this. He did it from the overflow of his love for God. In our kind of this world that we live in, which kind of gives God the leftovers, we need to be reminded of the magnificence of his worth. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our resources. He is worthy of our money and our time. He's worthy of all of our life. David had a lot to give. So, He gives a lot. Our worship must be abundantly generous. But finally, number three, David's worship is responsive. It's it's physical, it's corporate, it's participatory. David and all the people participated in shouting and singing and, and dancing. And far from the idea of like a few ministering to the many, This was the many focused on the one. This was a festival for Yahweh. And this wasn't worship done at a distance by professionals. Uh, There were priests who were ministering before the Lord for sure, but this worship was inclusive. Everybody was involved. And this is also a part of our culture. We kind of have that, like in the West, this entertain me mentality. And we need to remind ourselves of the importance of participation, worshiping, wholehearted worship. It's not passive, it's active. And it's not for a few, it's for the many. And it is definitely physical. I remember a number of years back, also while we were living in Scotland, being invited to our first Scottish wedding with like the whole nine yards, bagpipes, kilts, it was awesome. It was at this little estate manor house just south of Edinburgh. I mean, it was, it was incredible. 
And we got invited because by our, our, our dear friends that were living beside us, Bev and Jason, uh, and they weren't believers. We got to know them. Honestly, in many ways, this young couple helped us figure out what it meant to be Scottish. She was like this uh, cancer counselor and she would like, she just would come over all the time and help Brittany process what's going on around us and how do we, and then he was the captain of the Scottish rugby team. I kid you not, a giant of a man, okay? The captain of, his name was Jason White, okay? You look him up. And, uh, and, and it was just incredible. This couple helped us get to know what it meant to be Scottish. We got invited to their wedding. And there was literally like, there was 40 of us in this tiny, this one room inside this beautiful manor house. And, and, and we got to watch the ceremony. And then we had like a little tea together afterwards. And then, but we just kind of hung out throughout the day. And as the day went on, it all started filling up and more and more people started coming. And by the time we got to the afternoon, there was a bigger meal and there was a bunch more people. By the time we got to the evening, the evening where the Kaylee would take place. Any Kaylee people out there? You know what? Have you ever heard of that? Imagine like a cross between like, like a, a barn dance and like a mosh pit, okay? <laughs> That's Scottish Kaylee dancing, okay? It's very traditional. They have a collar. It's a beautiful, amazing thing. Um, but by the time we got to the evening, the, the, the room was packed and packed with the Scottish national rugby team, okay? So this is a bunch of giant people. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, like, I mean, there was alcohol flowing there. And so you've got these giant men who have had a couple beer who are dancing and plowing into each other. It was like taking your life into your hands, being out on the dance floor. Now, this is the thing. This is where I'm going with this. Remember, this is David the warrior king. I know sometimes maybe our imagination can just drift to just the shepherd boy out there. This is the guy who had killed his tens of thousands. And he is dancing with all that he has. The word that's used is only used, in, it's, it's actually not used in other, any other part of the Old Testament. And it's the word whirling. It was like the author didn't even know. I don't, I don't know how to describe what David's doing right now. He's whirling about with all of his might, singing and crying out to God because he loves him so much and he doesn't know what to do. The da David, the warrior king, leaving it all on the field. And I get it. Like when we imagine this scene, it can seem kind of bizarre. I mean, we have like a uh, religious crazy people box, right? It's the one that says, this is where we put, put that person in the religious crazy people box, right? And, and we do that. When we see worship like this, we just, we automatically click. But when it comes to worshiping wholehearted, the Bible is full of example after example, all pointing to one reality. Wholehearted worship involves every aspect of our being, including our bodies, in fact, 1 Corinthians 6 says, Paul's writing this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The word, can also, the word honor can also be translated glorify. Like glorify God with your bodies. Paul calls us to bring glory to God with our biology. And that can look like taking good care of our souls and our, our physicality. It can look like honoring God with our sexuality. But all over scripture, it also looks like physical expressions of worship. 
like kneeling, Psalm 95, verse 6. Bowing, Micah 6, verse 6. Raising our heads, Psalm 3, verse 3. Lifting up our hands, Lamentations 3, verse 41. And dancing before the Lord. It's all over the scriptures. Psalm 30, Psalm 149, Psalm 150. Even Jesus lifted up his hands to heaven. He lifted up his head to his father. He knelt in prayer in Luke 22. Jesus even got physical with his worship. It seems biblical worship includes physical responses, which does confront some of our cultural like nuance, and it does confront some of our own pride. Now, certainly, Different settings demand different responses, for sure. It would be inappropriate to have a crowd cheering like at a Blazers game in like a museum around a really beautiful painting. That would be weird. It just wouldn't match. But as David expresses his heart in worship, a man after God's own heart, it gets expressed physically. God desires worshipers that worship from the love that's inside of them. And when we love someone, it's evident with our lives. The Bible and arguably our culture suggests that the greater the love, the greater the evidence. Which is why it might seem odd that our worship is so reserved. We might be tempted to think to ourselves, well, maybe it's just because we're more educated now. We're, we've got a more modern perspective. But 2 Samuel 6 verse 16 goes on to say this as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David Michal daughter of Saul watched from a window and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord she despised him in her heart I mean you can feel Michal's scorn you can see her sneer and suddenly it's clear that religious crazy person box I'm just going to call it the RCPB it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's been around since the beginning. And it too has something to do with our heart. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34, that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Literally, the mouth is like a pressure, an overflow pressure valve for the heart. And when the pressure builds, the valve opens and out it comes. David's dancing and singing was the overflow of the joy in his life. His, his, his heart was fixated on Yahweh, on showing God his love. And that's what poured out. Because scorn was the overflow of privilege, pride, and pain in her heart. Her heart was fixated on herself, all she had lost. And that's what poured out. David continues for the next several verses in this very public worship, blessing the people, giving them gifts of food for celebration, encouraging them to go home and bless their own homes. And again, there's this overflow of blessing and encouragement and celebration, but not everyone sees it that way. We continue reading in verse 20, when David returned home to his home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servant as any vulgar fellow would do. David said to McCall, it was before the Lord 
who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will become even more indignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. McCall accuses David of impropriety. David has humiliated himself. Now to be clear, the linen ephod was, it likely covered from like his elbows to his knees. Most scholars think that this was the, the linen garment that, that the priests would wear underneath the priestly robes. And see, because David, he wasn't a priest in the line of Aaron, unable to handle like the holy objects or be able to do atonement sacrifice. But he was a king of a kingdom of priests, which did afford, Exodus 19, verse six, it did afford him the ability to lead in worship and to bless his people, which is what he was doing. And McCall, she wasn't embarrassed by David's skin. She was embarrassed by the humble nature of his clothing and his placement, his placement in the parade. The king was supposed to be riding high on a war horse at the back of the procession or at the very least carried on the shoulders of his slaves, not dancing out in front with all of the lesser men. He was less than a king. He was less than a priest. And David, David couldn't agree more. That linen ephod pointed to his passion to be a worship leader, but it was more than that. It was also a symbol of his own unimportance. As if to say, I'm not even worthy to be a priest in this parade. He wore the underclothing, no gold, no royal robes, no crown, completely insignificant before the real throne that was riding on the backs of the Levites behind him. You see, David entered Jerusalem exactly how he wanted to enter Jerusalem, as a worshiper of Yahweh. His big entrance was a statement of God's importance, not his. God was the one on the throne, not him. God was the center of this festival. God was the center of this celebration. God was the center of this kingdom, not him. David entered exactly how he wanted to enter. Wholehearted worship is the acceptance of Jesus as king and not us. Of Jesus as most valued, not us. It leads to a life where we, with John the Baptist, declare out loud, he must increase and I must decrease. It challenges our need to manage our image and it calls us back into being image bearers. McCall could not get this into her mind. This idea just did not make sense. So foreign to her ideals. She was the, the wife, the first wife of the current king and the daughter of the previous one. She mattered. She was a big deal. How dare David take anything away from that? How dare he lessen her station? But David, he wasn't in this for his image. And he didn't care if he was misunderstood. In the midst of all of the eyes, there was only one set of eyes that mattered to him. I will celebrate before the Lord. 
I will be more undignified than this, says David. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I will decrease and he will increase. David's worship was obedient to its core. David's worship was extravagant right out there. David's worship was responsive. He responded with all that he was and David's worship was undignified. Now to be clear, David, he wasn't setting out to like embarrass himself. No, if that was his intent, that would mean he was trying to get the eyes on him. No, his eyes were on his king. He was simply worshiping him with all of his heart no matter what anyone else thought. I remember a couple years back, we as a church family, we just, we just been walking through some really, really rough stuff. And I remember going out for a prayer walk. If you guys ever come on a, on a midweek, you'll often find one or two of us out just kind of looping this building park praying. And I remember it was kind of like in a really a particular difficult season where God had just suddenly shown up in like a powerful and profound and incredible way and I was out walking and praying and talking to God because I was just so thankful and overwhelmed. And I remember in the midst of like experiencing his goodness and experiencing his like blessing, I remembered tears. They just began to like freely stream. And I suddenly found myself right out there in that parking lot, right out there. I found myself falling to my knees. I, I didn't know what else to do. I was so overwhelmed by God's goodness and his greatness. I, I, be, I was a grown man crying like a baby, kneeling in the middle of a parking lot right out there. But you know what? In that moment, I did not care. I did not care because I was encountering all of the goodness that God was, all of the overwhelming blessing that he was, all the blessing that I did not deserve. And the only thing I could think to do was to go to the ground. It didn't matter where I was. And yeah, in retrospect, felt pretty embarrassing probably, right? I mean, what if there was somebody driving? I could have gotten hit by one of those Teslas. But in that moment, it just didn't matter. And friends, that's the key. That's the key. You know, there's coming a time when every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every style of music and dance and expression, it's all going to be on the knees. We're all going to fall to a knee and declare that Jesus is king. We will all be humiliated in our own eyes. We will all be more undignified than this. We will all celebrate before the Lord. What if we've been given this prologue that we call life as a place to practice for the real deal? What if, what if this is just our dress rehearsal? Maybe that's the call to be less concerned about what everybody's thinking about us and just worship him from your heart. No guidelines, no expectations around what that even looks like. Just allow yourself that encounter. I got a couple practices that I want to call us into as a community. Uh, and these, kind of, these two things kind of kept coming up. This pra one practice like for this week, okay? For this week, I want to encourage you to like go 
go into your life, spend some time in prayer and actually just ask God, like, what's keeping me, Jesus, from becoming undignified? What is it? Draw a circle around it. Like, what's that thing or a couple things? And, and then I want you to like share it with somebody. There's nothing better to change. Not, nothing helps you change quicker than, than bringing somebody else into a conversation. You don't have to, it's like, I got this big long list. You don't have to do all of it. Just pick something, one thing, an obstacle that's keeping you from undignified worship. Share it with somebody this week. And then a practice for today, because obviously we're about to come into some worship here together. And, and I, I want you to right now with me promise to fight the whole, that whole authenticity lie where it's like, if I don't feel it, it's not real. Like, that's not a thing. Just let that set aside. I want to encourage you, a practice for today. Take one step, one small step out of your comfort zone. Like, let's practice now here in this place. If you're, kind of, if you're one of those kind of people that likes to worship with your hands like this, then maybe just worship with your hands like this. If like raising your hand feels like the most painful thing in the universe, I literally had a person lean over to me one time and tell me they would rather die. I was like, that's extreme, that's extreme. But then, but maybe it's this, maybe that's all it is. If you don't know how to sing, it's like, oh, you wouldn't want to hear me singing, then just mouth the words. Take one baby step forward. Would you all stand your feet? Grab your communion cups. You know, it's interesting. We go through this every single week. And to that, to that end, it sometimes can become so common that we, re, we forget actually how odd this actually is, right? I mean, in what other context do you set aside a moment to remember a person who was crucified 2,000 years ago by eating a tiny little wafer and drinking some really bad juice? Like there, that, that context, it's unusual. Every single week, we take a moment to do something unusual, to, to, to reignite our hearts, to remind us that this is faith. This is worship. This is taking a moment to remember the God of the universe who sent his son as an offering, as a sacrifice for us so that we could spend the rest of our days in right relationship with him, with worship coming out of every part of our being. So we're going to do that together. I want to, I want to encourage you, just circle up with two or three other people around you. When you do, pull out the, the little cracker. And I want you to speak this out over each other, look each other in the face. This is Christ's body given for you. Say it out. And then go ahead and flip it over. This, this blood, this representation of Jesus' blood given for us to pay for our sins as a sacrifice. Speak this out over each other. This is Christ's blood poured out for you. Jesus, we acknowledge right now in this moment that you, you are the center of this whole thing. 
even when we come together to do communion, it's us saying, we want you at the center, like the Ark of the Covenant in our midst. We want you in the midst of us. So we choose in this moment, Lord, to say, this is all about you. Help us, Lord, to, to lay down those extra expectations and those places where we, where we feel like we need to perform and help us to lock our eyes on you, Jesus, because we love you and this is yours. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.